There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Rachna Schoenberg, finance editor at The Economist, and this week, it's all about inflation. Until very recently, worrying about rising prices had gone out of fashion, a relic of the 1970s, like bell-bottom trousers and leaded petrol. Now it's bordering on a global obsession. As new data on inflation from around the world continue to exceed expectations, will central bankers be able to set the trend? It was a very close call. The pressure is rising on Andrew Bailey, Governor of the Bank of England. We spent many hours, we always spent many hours, but we seem to spend even more many hours this time over it as, as, as we should. Earlier this month, he surprised many by deciding not to raise interest rates. Yeah, we're in a situation where you know, the calls are close, they're quite hard, but that's just a reflection of the position we're in. But this morning, new official figures show that inflation in Britain climbed steeply in October to 4.2%, its highest in nearly a decade. Christine Lagarde, president of the European Central Bank, is also determined not to act too soon. If you consider the immediate short term, if we were to have any kind of tightening approach to the current situation, it would actually do more harm than good. But inflation in the Eurozone stands at 4.1%, more than double the ECB's target. And figures published last week showed that American consumer prices rose by 6.2% in October compared with last year. That's the highest rate in more than 30 years. To dig into what's driving these price moves and whether they're here to stay, I'm joined from Washington, D.C. by our U.S. economics editor, Simon Rabinovich. Welcome, Simon. Thank you very much, Rashna. And also in D.C., our trade and international economics editor, Ryan Avent. It's great to be with you. Now, discussion about inflation is everywhere right now. Ryan, why do you think these price moves are capturing so much attention and is too much being read into them? It does feel like it's all inflation all the time, but I think it's sort of understandable in the sense that in the decades prior to the pandemic, inflation across the world had been trending downward. In the years between the global financial crisis and the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about whether it was gone for good and whether central banks might even be able to generate enough inflation. So to get to this point tells us something new about how the economy is working. And then I think it also, when we look at some of the causes in terms of energy price increases and and supply shocks, it has some people concerned that maybe we're actually going back to the world of the 1970s and to persistent high rates of inflation and all the sort of nasty things that came along with that. I think Ryan is absolutely right with the context that he laid out. And I think the other reason that, that it's obviously grabbing a lot of attention right now is just the incredible 
uncertainty about about the path ahead there there was really two sides to the debate to to sort of simplify a little bit and it's kind of a clever way for headline writers to talk about it they've talked about team transitory versus team persistent and the transitory idea is simply that you know a lot of the inflation that we're seeing today is because of the incredible dislocations in the global economy because of all the supply shortages that that we've seen uh, and so you know it would just take a matter of time and things would get back to normal. Team Persistent has been arguing that actually something more fundamental has gone on. It's not just about the supply chain snarls. Uh, you know, in fact, maybe there, there has been an excessive degree of stimulus that's been pumped through the economy, especially here in America, and that maybe structurally the labor market has changed where the uh, unemployment rate is now going to settle at a somewhat higher level than, than prior to the pandemic. There's a lower labor force participation rate. And then consistently, if you look at projections from the Fed uh, over the past year, they have underplayed how high inflation actually would be. Simon, do you think the new data indicate whether team transitory or team persistent might be right? It really is a, a bit of a simplification to, to divide it simply into transitory versus persistent. I think those who are now in the transitory camp would say that, you know, maybe that label actually was somewhat of an unfortunate one to begin with because, you know, nobody quite knows exactly how to define transitory. If it's not a three-month thing, if it then becomes a six-month or a 12-month or an 18-month thing, then then, you know, what exactly is transitory? I think what we saw with the October reading of, of the CPI in America, 6.2%, the highest in more than 30 years, uh, is that, you know, all of these dislocations from the pandemic are clearly enduring. And, and moreover, the, the inflationary pressure is beginning to broaden out. So I think that really is the debate now. It's not transitory versus persistent. It's, is this a pandemic-centered inflation or, or has it gotten broader than that at this point? Well, our colleagues on the data team have been trying to answer precisely that question. I spoke to Arjun Romani to find out more. There are really two questions that need to be answered. The first is, are prices actually unusually concentrated right now in a few items of the basket? And the second is, if they are, does that mean inflation is likely to slow down as a result? So let's start with the first of them, how concentrated actually are price increases. And the reason why it's not an obvious answer is because typically when inflation is higher, there's more variance in the price changes across all the different components in the basket. So by simply comparing the spread and the price increases over time will give you a misleading picture. Instead, what you need to do is control for the actual level of inflation and see whether you know inflation is more or less concentrated now compared to past periods in time when inflation was at a similarly high absolute level. So my colleagues Dan Rosenheck, Daniela Raz, and I built a data set of price changes and expenditure weights since 1959 for every item in the inflation basket. You know, there are hundreds of items that, you know, compose these different indexes, for example, used cars or furniture or, or food or, energy, you know, and, and food can be broken down even further into, you know, meats and uh, dairy products, and those can be broken down even further. So there's basically this very, very large tree or hierarchy of subcomponents that don't overlap. So what we were looking for was uh, a way of measuring how spread out all the price changes are. For instance, in early summer, 
used cars and a few other items were increasing at breakneck paces, you know, over 20% year over year, whereas many other items were, were basically flat and, and, and some were even, were even falling. So when we actually measure the, the degree of unusual concentration for the 12-month period ending in, in May of 2021, we find that it's at the 97th percentile, which means that inflation is more unusually concentrated than 97% of months going back till 1959. This has come down a bit. So if we look at the most recent data, it's now at the 89th percentile. So inflation is broadening to more components of the basket, but it's still relatively concentrated compared to the past. So this matters because the degree to which inflation is concentrated right now actually has an impact on the level of inflation in the future. When excess unusual concentration is very high, then you'll get a lower future inflation rate than you otherwise would. So knowing that high concentration implies future inflation will be lower than otherwise, what weights uh, should we apply to different components in the inflation basket to produce the best projections of, of future inflation? And so when we trained a model, what we came up with was this uh, hill shape that looks kind of like the Uluru Plateau in Australia, which is kind of a, a, br a broad central plateau, and it has you know, a steep slope on the left side and, and a slightly gentler one on, on the right side. The interesting thing about this hill is it does downweight the most extreme price movements in the inflation basket, but doesn't get rid of them completely. In fact, for the highest price changes, it, it actually gives it a weight of uh, close to 50%. This is very different than either the trimmed mean measure, which gets rid of it completely, or the normal inflation index, which would give it a weight of 100%. So when we use this Allure index, we found that the predicted future inflation for the next 12 months is still 4.1%, which is below the current level, but still relatively high. So I think the, the big picture takeaway for, for policymakers here is that extreme price movements and in inflation indices shouldn't be treated as black and white. So sometimes the extreme price movements can actually contain valuable information about what's going on in the world. Ignoring them entirely can be an even bigger error. Ryan and Simon, now, Arjun stressed that the Uluru Index is still exploratory work, but it's certainly very thought-provoking. What does it suggest to you, Simon, if I can ask you first, about how we should be thinking about these current price moves? Well, I think the real value of, of the work done by Arjun and colleagues on the Uluru Index um, is that it, it sort of begins to shift the focus of, of what we think of core inflation as, you know, this really is quite a broad set of pressures right now. Uh, and for ordinary Americans, ordinary Brits, ordinary Europeans, etc., you know, this inflationary episode uh, is not just something in the headlines. It's something that's really kind of hitting close to home for them. And I, I think the index does a good job of showing that. Uh, whether its predictive powers are, are correct or not, uh, time will tell. But certainly it does suggest that, you know, this inflationary episode is, is going to persist well into next year. What other indications are there that inflation might be more long-lived? I mean, economists tend to look at wages and rents, for example. What are they telling us about inflation in America? I mean, I think if you are inclined to see the inflation uh, that we're experiencing in the rich world and in the U.S. in particular as being more persistent, uh, there are certainly things that you can point to. And among those are the costs of shelter, uh, you know, there's been an extraordinary increase uh, in home prices uh, that's translating into rising rents to some extent. Supply of homes is not something that can kind of spring back very quickly. That's likely to be persistent. 
Uh, and then, you know, we've also seen extraordinary wage increases for a lot of workers. If you think that something structurally has changed in the labor market, and that's why we're seeing these really uh, uh, extraordinary increases in wages, uh, then you might think this is likely to persist and that maybe we start to see a wage price spiral in which in order to attract workers, firms offer ever higher uh, salary rates. And they do this because they can afford to pass on the cost to higher prices. And that sort of feeds through to itself. But you know, I think looking at what our colleagues did with the Aluro Index, which I think is really extraordinary and fun, one thing that stands out is that you see these regime changes over time, you know, that the, the behavior of inflation in the 1970s just looks very different. And we're all sort of wondering, looking at the data, you know, have we experienced a regime change or not? And so there's there's a lot of sort of reading of tea leaves and trying to divine something that we maybe just can't know until we see how it all plays out. Now, Simon, um, some economists are bringing forward their expectations of um, interest rate rises by the Federal Reserve. But there's also a sense that inflation is sort of entering the political debate and that it's a problem for President Biden and perhaps the administration should do something about it. What can he do about it? Well, it definitely has entered the political arena. I mean, obviously, the Republicans are, are looking for whatever they can use against Biden and the Democrats. And, you know, inflation is definitely a big stick to hit them with right now. It's denting his popularity. It's uh, beginning to show up in surveys. There's this paradox that, in fact, America has enjoyed an incredibly rapid recovery. Uh, and yet sentiment about the economy um, is, is looking quite weak because of inflation, because people are experiencing it, because people like us are talking about it nonstop. And it's clearly having an impact on his real agenda as well. I mean, he's got a, a big uh, social spending and climate bill, the Build Back Better legislation that he would like to pass. That would be, you know, a cornerstone part of his agenda. And one of the big arguments that's being leveled against it uh, quite disingenuously uh, is that it would be bad for inflation. In fact, um, the amount of spending relative to GDP is, is in fact relatively minimal, just about 1% of GDP. And that's spread out uh, over many years, over a decade. So it should not uh, have a short term impact on inflation. Long term, in fact, you know, if you increase the productive capacity of the economy, uh, you could argue that it would in fact be disinflationary. So it's having a real political impact. Uh, but the truth of the matter is there's not all that much they can do. It's, you know, given that supply chains aren't just American, they really are global, you know, getting the pandemic pandemic under control is the most important thing, but that's not something that's strictly speaking within Joe Biden's power. Uh, and then ultimately, the most important response that will come from an arm of the government uh, is, is going to be the Federal Reserve. Thanks, Simon. And thank you, Ryan. We'll be back in just a moment to look at how these price pressures in America compare to what's happening elsewhere. But first, if you like what we do and want full access to The Economist's world-leading analysis, make sure you subscribe. There's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. And that link is in the notes for this episode. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We've been focusing on the American economy so far, but Ryan, you cover emerging markets and you've written about inflation in emerging markets. 
How would you compare and contrast what's happening there with what's happening in the rich world? Well, it ends up feeling a lot different, I think, in emerging markets for a few reasons. One is that, you know, if you kind of look at, at U.S. inflation or inflation in, in other rich countries, you know, a substantial component of that is yeah, rising costs for durable goods, big, expensive things that households buy. Like in the U.S., you know, vehicle costs have soared, and that's something that's contributed a lot to inflationary pressure. In the emerging world, food and energy prices end up being much more impactful. They're, they're a much larger share of household budgets, and, and households tend to have less in savings. And so they're facing a squeeze on on essentials that are that, you know, they end up struggling to sort of uh, afford in many cases. And then the other sort of aspect that tends to be different in parts of the emerging world is that there's less credibility in some cases for the macroeconomic policymakers, for the governments, for the central banks. They have to worry more about maintaining investor confidence. And so they have to be much more aggressive in fighting inflation by putting up interest rates. That ends up squeezing economies often, uh, which is a difficult thing given, you know, the need to recover from the pandemic. Uh, and in a few cases, you know, you worry about things getting out of hand. You know, you look at a, at a country like Argentina, which has been relying on the printing press to to fund itself and has inflation rates of uh, 50% or more. If you're an emerging market that lacks the credibility in your policymaking institutions, you can really get into some really bad situations in, in a way that's just fundamentally different from what the rich world is experiencing. Perhaps the starkest contrast with America in terms of headline inflation figures come from Asia. Japan, of course, has long had low inflation rates. But at the moment, another really interesting anomaly is China. I've been talking to our China economics editor, Simon Cox, about what's going on behind the headlines. Well, the latest figures for October show consumer prices really quite subdued. They rose by 1.5% in October compared with October of last year. That's a bit up on where they were before. But if you look across the world, that's remarkably quiescent. Of the G20 group of major economies, China has the lowest inflation rate except for Saudi Arabia and, of course, Japan. So that's remarkably stable. Tell us more. Why are the price pressures that other countries are seeing not showing up in China? Well, we are seeing inflationary pressure upstream. So if you look at wholesale prices, producer prices, as they're called, they're rising actually at a record pace. They rose at over 13% in October. And that largely reflects the same energy crisis we're talking about worldwide. But in China, it has particular features. There was a scarcity of coal. And in particular, power plants in China that rely on coal couldn't pass those higher costs onto electricity buyers because those prices uh, were controlled by the government. So some power generators just stopped producing power because uh, it wasn't profitable for them to do so. Uh, That led to sporadic power cuts. And that is reflected in some of the higher prices we're now seeing for energy. So that's contributed to this big jump in producer prices. But that's been offset, as far as consumers are concerned, by an equally dramatic drop in food prices, particularly the price of pork. Last year, swine herds in China were affected by African swine flu. So that led to very sharp price increases back then. And compared to those high prices last year, pork prices now are relatively low. And what's the government's response been to these price changes in China? So they're quite cautious. Uh, The Ministry of Commerce in particular is worried about the effects of winter. That usually leads to increased demand for electricity and heating. So although they've gone to great lengths to try and solve this energy crunch, they're quite cautious and they've, they've advised consumers to stock up on some essentials, including food and other things that will get them through the winter. 
Now, you're based in Hong Kong. Are any of these price spikes or the price dips being experienced by people there as well? So inflation in Hong Kong is also low if you look across the board, but there's been quite a lot of publicity about increases in electricity prices. My own electricity bill has gone up about 30% over the past year. That's perhaps not causing as much upset as it might normally because it's been a beautiful month, so we haven't been using air conditioners as much. The weather's been cool. And last year in particular, a lot of us were sort of staying home more because of the pandemic and restrictions on social activity. So we actually use more electricity because we were home more. So even though the price has gone up, perhaps our electricity bills haven't gone up quite as much as you might think. And you can console yourself by eating lots of pork. That's true, yeah. What do you think the prospects are for inflation in China over the next six months or so? Yeah, so it's an interesting tussle between sort of two competing forces. So just as in the immediate past, we've seen producer prices accelerating, we've seen consumer prices, though, offsetting it. We might see a reverse of that in the next few months, uh, because China has really pulled out all the stops to expand coal production. And you know, on futures markets, we've seen coal prices drop quite dramatically. But at the same time, you know, some of the past pressures are feeding through now. And also food prices won't stay low forever. And the particularly high prices we saw last year will sort of drop out of the measurement. So we might see some upward pressure on consumer prices. But the Chinese economy as a whole uh, still seems pretty weak, uh, pretty subdued. Every now and again, we get these COVID outbreaks that put a, a dampener on consumption. So my own expectation is that although consumer price inflation will probably edge up, it won't get uh, excessive. And if it were to rise, what would that mean for policymakers in China? Presumably a bit of a dilemma. Yeah, so they're already wrestling with this dilemma, which is between growth and financial stability. So they've been trying to sort of put limits on property developers in particular on how much they can borrow. And that slowed down the property market, which is a very important part of the Chinese economy. So they don't want to relax those constraints too early. If on top of that financial stability concern, there's a price stability concern, that would make it even less likely that they would ease policy. China's central bank actually has quite a good record in keeping uh, inflation under control. It's a better record than many people realise. They're actually quite tough when consumer prices go up, even though they're often perceived to be quite lax about credit growth. So I think if consumer price inflation did sort of edge up to like 4 or 5%, it really would be a concern. And it would uh, definitely take dramatic easing off the table, almost regardless of what was happening in the property market. For a long time, people thought, economists thought that China was sort of exporting deflation to the rest of the world. The concern now is because producer prices are high, it might be exporting inflation. What do the current inflation dynamics in China mean for the global economy? Yeah, so China gets blamed either way. Um, I, I think that you know we've seen this dramatic increase in demand for goods worldwide as a result of the pandemic, this sort of shift from services to stuff. And clearly the fact that China's factories got back to work quite early meant that some of that demand could be met. Uh, we've seen you know, very, very strong exports out of China. So it's a bit hard to say that you know China's the cause of any uh, inflationary pressure, really. I would sort of acquit it on those charges. If indeed we do see downstream inflation, it might start to sort of show up in export prices, I suppose. But I would lay the blame elsewhere. So Simon Cox emphasised there the Chinese central bank's strong record on controlling inflation. Simon Rabinovich, you used to cover China until recently. What does it all mean for the rest of the world? 
you know, Simon Cox is absolutely right that the, the PBOC has hard-earned credibility in, in dealing with inflation over the years. In recent years, it really has been the pork cycle that's that's driven things, and that's now turned very favorable for China. And, and moreover, when people point to the producer price inflation, and really that's a reflection of global commodity prices. And if anything, you know, right now, given the, you know, the big, big investment headwinds because of the extreme slowdown in the property sector, you could actually see China as a force for certainly, if not deflation, disinflation in the coming couple of quarters, because slower investment will translate to less pressure on global commodity prices. And one of the big inputs into global inflation will therefore be reduced. It's uh, it's, it's always encouraging when you get to the good part of the, the pork cycle. That's, that's something <laughs> we can all look forward to. Well, of course, credibility is equally important to rich world central banks. And the rise in inflation in America and Europe does sort of come at a delicate moment. Both the Fed and the ECB have tweaked their monetary policy framework, saying they'll tolerate higher inflation for a period. The ECB hasn't gone quite as far as the Fed, but in both places, inflation is now well above target. Do you think that's a dilemma for them? I think it is a dilemma. So, I mean, just to lay out in, in very basic terms what the Fed is doing, you know, previously it, it had talked about targeting a 2% inflation rate. Well, now it talks about targeting an average of 2% inflation over the cycle. Now, the issue is how big should the overshoot be? What's interesting is that when you talk about the credibility of the central bank, you know, one of the ways to measure it is to look at what the market is actually pricing in. And there's different metrics that are used. But, you know, one of the key ones, if you kind of take a slightly longer horizon, uh, is, is what's known as the, the five-year, five-year forward rate. And basically, it's looking at different pricing on bonds to, to kind of say what, what the market thinks the inflation rate will look like, you know, in five years' time. Uh, and when you look at that, it's actually, you know, it's ticked up a little bit, but it's still just a little over 2%. And so there is still this very, very deep-seated uh, and I think probably deserved belief that ultimately the Fed will do whatever it takes to bring inflation down. Just to bring in the euro area here as a, as a as a point of comparison, for a long time, the ECB, the European Central Bank, had a specific problem that neither the Federal Reserve nor the Bank of England had. And that was that inflation expectations, as measured by five-year, five-year forwards, were too low relative to the ECB's target. Now we're in a situation where those inflation expectations are around target, so on the face of it, good news for the ECB. Um, but the question, as in other rich countries is what happens, you know, whether those inflation expectations sort of carry on rising and, and drift away and above target. Now, Simon, there's potentially another reason why the Fed is at a delicate moment, and that is that we're still waiting to hear if Jerome Powell will be renominated for a second term as chairman of the Fed. Over the weekend, Janet Yellen refused to be drawn on whether she would back him or not. And he's been instrumental in championing this new approach to central banking. How much do you think hangs on whether he's um, reappointed or not? Well, I, I don't actually think it does hang on his reappointment because, uh, you know, it's not as if the other potential candidates uh, are ones who would reverse his work. I think in terms of monetary policy, you know, the one person who's talked about as, as being the leading alternative, Lael Brainard, you know, was part of the, the, the Fed that came to this new framework. It wasn't, you know, an individual move by, by Powell. The, the real question there is more one about financial regulation, where, you know, some of the Democratic Party feel that Powell has been too soft on banks. Others disagree with that. Uh, but certainly it is an added bit of unwelcome uncertainty. 
I think Simon is right that the Biden administration has sort of needlessly added to the sense of uncertainty around who's going to be running the Fed. But I think that there is an insinuation that some of the inflation warriors make that maybe the Fed has kind of changed its approach to to inflation dramatically to such an extent that we might get back to the 1970s. And I think that just doesn't stand up to close scrutiny, really. I mean, if you look back at what Fed officials were saying in the 1970s, there wasn't even any agreement on whether monetary policy could check inflation at that point. And and we've come quite a long way from that. And the extent to which the Fed is committed to fundamentally keeping uh, inflation over the long run at 2%, I think, is not in question. And Simon, what's your sense of how soon inflation might decelerate and start to return to more normal levels, if you like? What do economists' forecasts suggest? You will expect that at, you know, at some point next year, manufacturing shipping operations, factory production will begin to normalize. It's already slowly, slowly beginning to normalize semiconductor production, which is one of the things that was then holding up car production. That's begun to improve in recent weeks. Then the other big factor is the demand pull. In fact, if you look at fiscal policy, because of the withdrawal of stimulus, the shift towards you know a much lower deficit, that's beginning to exert a drag on growth in America. Uh, The Fed is tapering. Uh, You now have, you know, predictions that they'll be increasing interest rates potentially as early as the first half of next year. And so, you know, on on that front, I think as well, you begin to see uh, the demand side being much less inflationary. So I I think there's a strong case to be made. and And it really is, I'd say, the consensus view that by around the middle of next year, uh, inflation really does begin to recede quite noticeably. Uh, and then by the end of next year, basically inflation is back towards being, you know, more or less at the 2% on target level. With one big caveat, which is that this forecast of things more or less getting back to normal has been the forecast of the Fed and I'd say the majority of good economists for the past half year. And so we have to kind of keep our mind open to the possibility that, you know, once again, we're going to be proven wrong. And Ryan, you started off by telling us about the structural forces that were pulling down on inflation in the in the decades before the pandemic. Do you see those reasserting themselves at some point over the next few years? Well, prior to the pandemic, we did have a lot of these broad structural forces that have played out over the course of decades that I think helped drag inflation down. And, you know, that's things like demographic change, populations becoming older and saving for retirement. It was things like technological change and globalization, which helped to make production more efficient. Despite the wrenching change that we've experienced over the past two years, you know, those factors, for the most part, continue to be in place. You know, populations are still aging. I know I am. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the as much talk as there's been about deglobalization, you know, what we've really seen is maybe a, a slower pace of trade growth, but still quite a bit of, of global trade occurring. And indeed, if you look at imports to the U.S., they're, they're, they're setting all-time highs. I think the bigger picture maybe that I point to also is that after the global financial crisis, a lot of rich economies just didn't produce as much as they could for a long period of time. They were just operating with too little demand, consistently underperforming. And I think a lot of people have sort of internalized this idea that maybe the capacity to really grow in terms of actual productive output has been lost. And and, and there's a this sort of a, a broad pessimism about what rich economies are capable of doing. 
My feeling is that actually that's that that's way too pessimistic, and that if you if you look around and and see the extent to which there's been an investment boom in response to tight conditions over the past two years, there's good reason to be quite optimistic about how much the real economy is going to grow. And as that productive capacity grows, that's going to be another thing that allows inflation to come back down towards the target. Maybe the Fed's not going to have as tough a job as we think it might. Simon Rabinovich and Ryan Avent, thank you very much. Thank you, Rasha. Thank you, Rashna. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to leave us a rating or better yet, a review wherever you listen. You can also write to us directly at podcast at economist.com. The producer was Amika Shortino-Nolan, with additional production help from Rory Galloway. Nico Ralfast is our sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Shmueli. I'm Rachna Shanbog, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>